1: Somewhat about what mindfulness is and what it isn't. You know, starting with the understanding that simply being in the present or living in the present is necessary, but it's not sufficient. You know, and If you remember the example of the black labs who are in the present but don't look very mindful. And then discussing the difference between recognition and mindfulness. And how we can recognize something that's present, but it's not necessarily mindfulness if we're observing the experience through a filter of wanting or not wanting, aversion, delusion. So mindfulness is that particular kind of being with experience with a mind that's not colored by greed or wanting, not colored by aversion, not colored by delusion. So, we begin to get a sense of the clarity and the power of mindfulness. So, as our understanding of what mindfulness is deepens, and our experience of it deepens, we can begin to see that it's a methodology for answering some of life's very basic questions. One of them being, how can I be happy? I mean, this is something that all beings are in search of. How can I be happy? So, as was often the case, John Lennon had some good words about this. He said, when I was five years old, My mother always told me that happiness was the key to life. When I went to school, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wrote down, happy. They told me I didn't understand the assignment. And I told them they didn't understand life. (laughs) So he had something going even at five. So another way of expressing the question, we might ask ourselves, and I think this is really essential, this is a question that sometimes or often is not asked, is what do I learn from being mindful? You know, we give so much emphasis to understanding what mindfulness is, to the practice of it, to doing it. But the mindfulness itself, it's not an end in itself. Mindfulness is a way or it's a methodology for the development of wisdom. So the question that we really have to examine in our practice and in our lives is, okay, I'm doing all this practice, I'm putting so much energy into the cultivation and the development of this quality, what actually am I learning? from it. So that's what I'd like to talk about tonight, what we learn, or can learn, from being mindful. So one of the first things that hopefully becomes apparent, as we learn to pay attention in this particular way, is that what we do matters that our actions, whether it's of the body, of speech, of mind, that our actions have consequences, our actions bring about results. And of course, in classical Buddhist terms, this is expressed uh, as the law of karma. But we don't need some esoteric teaching about this. We can see very directly when we're being mindful that our actions, again, whether it's actions of the body, or speech of our minds, we can see directly for ourselves, if we're paying attention, that each of these actions has consequences for us. Some kinds of actions lead to happiness. Some kinds of actions lead to suffering. And if we look even further, following the Buddha's guidance, we can see that what most determines the quality of the outcome, is the motivation behind the action. So motivation becomes really important. It's easy to hear this as Buddhist philosophy, and it's interesting on that level, but it's not transformative. It's transformative when we see it for ourselves in our own experience. So that's why we we need to really be mindful of these various mind states that accompany the various actions. So there are some very simple areas <coughs> or arenas of investigation. This is uh, not necessarily a particularly esoteric inquiry. We can really examine this in some very simple, basic, everyday situations. So I'll just give a few examples of how we can examine this and see for ourselves not only that what we do matters, (coughs) but what actions or what qualities lead to what results. Very simple question. What does it feel like when you're being generous? And what does it feel like when you're being self-centered? You know, holding on. Well, this is something that we can examine many, many times. It's not its not something mysterious. When we're feeling generous and acting on it, what's the quality of our mind? And it's very interesting. Sometimes we can get <coughs> extremely subtle in our appreciation of what's going on when we're being generous. Because very often it's spontaneous and we just offer something, But it becomes interesting if we just pay a little more attention to the qualities of the mind involved in that. And what I found is really quite beautiful is that two things are going on among others when we're being generous. And that is that the qualities of mind, of heart that are present, generally there's a feeling of metta. We're being generous because we're having loving, friendly feelings towards somebody. And what also becomes obvious in the very act of giving, there is a renunciation. We're letting go of something in giving it to someone else. And so we, if we're paying attention, we can get an experiential hit of exactly what the feeling of metta is because we're experiencing it. And also we can begin to taste the pleasure of renunciation, which is generally not so obvious, especially in our society. You know, renunciation doesn't have a doesn't have great PR. You know, and people hear the word and just the word, ugh, you know. It's something like it's something that's good for us, but we don't really like it. You know, because it has connotations of deprivation and lack. But actually, when we're experiencing the quality of renunciation, and and another phrase that might illustrate or point to its freeing aspect, you could think of renunciation as non-addiction. Not holding on, not being addicted to things. In an act of generosity, we're not addicted. We're offering, and in that very act, we can experience the beauty Of that letting go. You know, the freedom in the spaciousness in it. So we begin to see just by paying attention how do I feel? What's it like when I'm being generous? What's it like when I'm not, when I'm being self centered? And it's really interesting like mindfulness or concentration or loving kindness generosity itself is its own practice you know it's a quality of mind that we can cultivate that we can practice and we're all at different places you know along that development for some people it's very easy it's, it's well developed in them and it's easy to be generous for other people with a different kind of conditioning for whatever reason it may not come so easily and so, really, need to practice. Start practicing in a very slow and gradual way. I had some very early lessons in this, um, and in looking back, this goes back to my early college years. Um, before I knew anything about, you know, I didn't know anything about Buddhism or the teachings or mindfulness. But I was in a situation, I was maybe a freshman in college, I had, you know, living the poor student life, I had no extra money at all, Uh, but I had a friend come, visit from Europe, and he really needed some money. Uh, I forget exactly the circumstance, but there was a real need. And so I thought, I, I think I had a few hundred dollars saved, you know, and I thought, well, I'll just... I'll give it to him. He, he really needs it, you know, more than I do. And I did. But in my mind at that time, because I still didn't really understand the whole dynamic and meaning of generosity, I remember wondering, is this okay? You know, is it okay to, do, I'm, you know, I, basically I told him, I'm just a young kid, and here I'm giving $300, which now doesn't you know, seem like a huge amount, but at that time it felt like a lot. Is it okay to do this? And it was striking in looking back that that should be a question in my mind. And it made me realize that for many of us, we need to be told (laughs) that it's okay. It's okay to be generous, you know, and that it actually brings a lot of happiness. And so over the years, I've worked with a practice about this that I have found uh, just so rewarding. It's one of the uh, the practices I love the best. And it takes some care in doing it, which I'll mention. And so the practice is, I've been doing it now for quite a few years, if I have the thought to give something, I make the practice to do it, not to second guess myself. You know, And sometimes it's just a little thing, you know, maybe offering something or offering some time or whatever, just a little gesture. Sometimes a thought comes and it's a big thing. It's something that maybe I'm attached to. Or maybe it's, you know, quite a large gift. But I've been practicing, if I have the thought, do it. And what's been amazing for me, you know, and I've been doing this now for years, uh, first it's very spontaneous because I'm not, I'm not thinking about, oh, what should I give? And, no, I'm just going on in my life. But paying attention to those thoughts of generosity and not second-guessing myself. No, I may need it later. No, they don't really need it. No, maybe. You know, all, those, all those doubting thoughts about whether we should be generous or not. So I have the thought. For the most, it's not perfect, but <laughs> I try to just do it. And it's been wonderful, but this is also a practice, and we're all in different places with it. And so, if there's some, you know, hesitation or wondering um, about our motivation, you know, am I doing it out of guilt? Um, am I really doing it? And it is too much for my means so that if we do it, then we have regret? Is it, a pro- is it an appropriate gift for the person? You know, so all these questions uh, could be entertained, especially at the beginning as one's engaging, or beginning to engage in this process, until we really have felt out for ourselves the degree to which this practice can be skillful. So we start small. You know, you don't have to start with some huge thing. The reason I'm emphasizing this so much now, and the Buddha emphasized it, traditionally he would begin all his teachings with a teaching on generosity because it is one of the most accessible avenues towards happiness. Again, we don't have to believe this. What I'm suggesting is by being mindful, of our own mind states and feelings and emotions, and how they arise in different actions, along with different actions we take, then we see for ourselves, this is a source of happiness in our lives. Thich Nhat Hanh had a wonderful little phrase, he's this Vietnamese, mindfulness master, and poet, and writer, and peace activist, you know, quite an exceptional being, he said, happiness is available, please help yourselves to it. (laughs) We can, if we know the causes of happiness, and this is what the Buddha is pointing out. He's saying, if you want to be happy, why don't you try this? So generosity is one thing to try, and to be mindful, you know, of what's going on in us, in the other person, in what occurs as we are cultivating this very beautiful quality. But again, we have to start where we are, you know, and just be sensitive to how you're doing it for your own balance of mind. Another very simple, very simple investigation What does it feel like when we're being kind or unkind? Which do you think brings more happiness? (laughs) Some of these things are so obvious. You know, sometimes I think the Buddha's teaching, I could imagine him, it's almost like he's teaching second graders. (laughs) Okay, be generous, (laughs) be kind, don't kill. (laughs) (laughs) On one level, it is that simple, (laughs) but we're all kind of enmeshed, you know, in the patterns of our conditioning. We've all been conditioned and brought up and habituated in certain ways, so sometimes we need to relearn these very basic understandings and principles. Kind or unkind? How does it feel when we're being inclusive? you know, with everyone, or exclusive, keeping people out. Just We can pay attention to that. Instead of just playing out the patterns, really we take a look. Is this a condition for happiness or not? And it's not theoretical. If, you know, in in these moments of relating in these different ways, and we're being mindful, we can check it out for ourselves in terms of, What's the effect on our hearts? What's the effect on our minds? When we speak, is our speech bringing people together, uniting people, or is it dividing people? You know, one of the most uh, prevalent uh, speech patterns in many people I mean, this is really common, it's probably common worldwide, is the tendency or the certain delight we can have in gossip, gossiping about other people. And I've just noticed both (laughs) uh, in my own speech, in that regard, or in listening to others, that kind of speech very often has an underlying divisiveness you know talking about maybe somebody's faults or something it's like trying to get people on our side you know as we as we're speaking of others so what would it be like first to see that to see oh so this kind of speech is dividing rather than uniting this kind of way of relating is excluding rather than ex, is excluding rather than including. Right? So these are these are ordinary everyday experiences we have. Are we paying attention? Because it's only through attentiveness to our own experience that actually some of these patterns can be transformed. I had an early lesson in this. So I was in India practicing in Bodh Gaya, which was the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. And this was in the early years. This was probably the late 60s. And very few people were there. Now there are lots and lots of Westerners who go. Then, I don't know, there may have been 12 or 15 of us at this place. And in between the times of intensive retreat, we would be doing our own practice and we each had all kind of a little hut, you know, around the garden wall. Uh, but sometimes we just get together, you know, more socially uh, when we weren't doing intensive practice. And one night, this one woman who was there, she said, as we were gathering, she, she, ha- she had written a song and she had a guitar and, you know, she wanted to sing it for us. And she said, I, I wrote a song about each of you. You know, and so my mind, that I just assumed with, without any, you know, particular thing I just assumed that would be like a humorous roast you know you know she would just pick out the quirky qualities of each person it turns out that her song she wrote a song highlighting the good qualities in each person and the uniqueness of that (laughs) just has stayed with me all these years. It was so unexpected that somebody would create this kind of highlighting all the good qualities in the people around. It was really amazing and the feeling of metta and connectedness and it was such a beautiful evening. Do you see how simple it is? This, this, This part of the practice is not complicated because it deals with bringing mindfulness into these very ordinary aspects of our experience. How we are with other people, how we are with our speech. But we're paying attention, we're watching our minds. What brings happiness? What brings peace? What doesn't? What I hope you will take away from this retreat is the understanding that it's not enough to know all this conceptually or intellectually. We can know, oh yeah, it's good to be generous and not to be stingy. It's good to be loving and not to be aversive. But knowing it conceptually or intellectually is very different than actually seeing directly and closely and intimately, the effect of these actions on our hearts and minds. So it needs to become very experiential. We need to verify these understandings, these conceptual understandings. We need to verify them in our own experience as we go through life. And that's what really gives energy for the purification of the mind. That's what gives energy for the transformation. Mindfulness can also lead us to more subtle levels of what brings us happiness, of what we can learn from being mindful. And what's so interesting before we actually engage in this investigation, we can be pretty confused about the causes of happiness. And we often do things wanting happiness, and yet we're doing the very things that cause suffering. So I'll give you an example. And just just that understanding it said is what motivated the Buddha after his enlightenment, as he viewed the world. And he said he saw all these beings who were seeking happiness and wanting happiness and desiring happiness and doing the very things that resulted in suffering because of delusion, because of confusion. And that's what motivated him, it said, out of compassion to share the teachings. So what are some examples of this? We can learn about this if we're mindful, if we're really mindful of what it's like when the mind is filled with wanting and desire. Now we've been taught by society that those qualities actually bring us happiness. There was one sign in the New York store, I forget, just walking down the street and I saw it in the window. The sign said, don't let desire pass you by. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And then just another, this was another ad for something or other. Nothing stands in the way of my pleasure. Yeah, And so just, you know, we're bombarded with messages that desire is good and fulfilling the desire is going to bring you happiness. And our whole culture, you know, is, we're just being fed that message. It takes, it takes some keen mindfulness not to just go along or be influenced by, you know, all of that messaging, But to actually look for ourselves when we are feeling wanting or feeling desire to actually be mindful of what does that feel like. What does it feel like when the mind is free of desire? So just as a little experiment, uh, and I really encourage you to do this because it's, in one way, it's revelatory and um, very impactful. So the next time there's desire in the mind, hopefully one will come before the end of the retreat. <laughs> but keep an eye out, you know, for, for when one might arise. And it can be a big desire, it can be a small desire, whatever. But just keep an eye out, you know, just... Okay, so there's a desire arising in the mind, wanting. And just sit with it, but be mindful of what it feels like when we're filled with this wanting. And what's interesting, the wanting is often there because we think it's going to bring us happiness. But we're not paying attention to actually how it makes us feel. So really be watchful. Okay, desire. You're not trying to get rid of it. You're just observing what's the effect of wanting and desire, in my experience. And then the desire at some point, all by itself, will go away. One of the great, great insights. <laughs> if you get this, you will have yet saved yourself a lifetime of suffering that you don't have to fulfill desires for them to go away. I mean, we think when they're strong, we think the only relief will come from actually fulfilling it but desires are impermanent like everything else they will go all, all by themselves so in this experiment the next time you're feeling some desire or wanting for anything notice what it feels like hang out with it for as long as it's there and then notice what it feels like when the desire goes that's the key moment my experience has been, and in talking with yogis you know, over all these years, it's a common experience. Desire, desire, desire. And then when it goes, it feels like we've been let out of the grip of something. You know, it's like the desire has held us in its grip. And there's a certain contraction and tension in that. Even if we're associating it with some pleasant fulfillment, but the actual experience of wanting. And then it ends. All of a sudden, it's like the heart and the mind are released out of the grip and the seduction of wanting. And we can feel, this is not theoretical, because we're there in the experience. We're being mindful of it as it's happening. We actually experience the freedom or the release or the peace or the openness or the spaciousness of not wanting. So again, this, this is huge because this can reorient you know uh, reorient our thinking about what's really important in our lives and what actually does bring happiness. And I'm not suggesting that We should never act on our desires, it's not about that. Because we do and this is just part of living in the world and there's nothing wrong with the enjoyment of these different pleasures, all of that's fine. But can we understand deeply really what's going on so that we don't devote our life energy to the fulfillment of desire in the pursuit of happiness because it's not going to give us what we want. It's not going to bring that result. But we need to see this <laughs> Again, you hear the words and you might agree or disagree, whatever, but I'm just inviting you to check it out. And that this is a really important piece. You know, when the Buddha laid out the Four Noble Truths, talked about the truth of difficulty or the truth of suffering or and what the cause was on a on a fundamental level is craving. And that the end of that dukkha, that, that suffering or the difficulty, is the end of craving. So this is you know, one of the interesting things that happened in my in my practice over the years, in the early years I used to practice with the idea I understood the teachings of Third Noble Truth, the end of suffering, the end of craving. And I would have the thought, oh, yeah, well, maybe in 20 or 30 years or five lifetimes, I'll come to the end of craving. You know, so I put it off as a far-off goal. And then at a certain point, I was on a retreat, and I realized, I can practice the end of craving now, even if it's just for a few moments. I can pay attention to what it's like when there's wanting and then not wanting. And actually get a taste, a taste of that peace when we're let out of the grip of it. So this is not something that needs to be postponed for full and complete enlightenment. We can have many moments of mini enlightenments, you know, throughout the day. So in a similar way, in terms of using mindfulness to investigate what really are the causes of happiness in our lives? What we can learn from being mindful is to pay attention when we're feeling a lot of aversion or anger. What does it feel like? You know, and, and just to to look at it as objectively as possible, so you're not involved in self-judgment or blame or anything. You're just investigating. Okay, aversion is in the mind, anger, irritation, annoyance, you know, all the forms of it. We just take it and we are, the mindfulness is, is just a way of understanding it in its own nature. Oh, anger feels like this. You know, irritation feels like this. So we will have a very direct experience. But what's so interesting is how seductive the feeling of anger is. It's a powerful energy, and often when we're feeling anger in different circumstances, we feel empowered, you know, because it's a powerful energy, and, and often we feel strong as we're, you know, in the midst of that emotion. But the Buddha, he, he, he uses one little example of which, which, to my mind, just captures the, the subtleties and nuances of this feeling. He said, anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip. Anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip, sweet tip. And I thought, yes, it's exactly like that. There is a sweetness. You know, we're, when we're really angry, there can be a delight in the, tch, yes. And we get seduced by the honeyed tip and not seeing the poisoned source. What does that mean? I mean, it's a dramatic term. But it really refers to something as simple as really paying attention to the effect of anger on our minds, so that we see the contraction, you know, and the aversion, and the feeling of separation, and the feeling of self-righteousness. But I think the even though we we may often justify the anger to ourselves, well, you know, in this situation, I should be angry, who is it that's suffering? We are the ones who are suffering, but often we're not really being mindful, and so we're not really seeing it or feeling it, the suffering of it. So having said all that, it's also important to realize that at times powerful emotions like anger or others are telling us something that we need to pay attention to. So there's some value in recognizing what's happening, in seeing the honeyed tip and the poison source, but also seeing, okay, is there, is there a message here? You know, is there something that needs responding to? So, just as a few examples, you know, sometimes maybe strong anger may arise in the face of injustice. And we see the injustice, whether it's towards us or other beings, you know, and in the face of that injustice, it really, it arouses anger in us and outrage. Or maybe there's a situation with individuals where they're really involved in some harmful actions and the anger is a signal, it's a message, I need to set boundaries here, you know, and that's important and that's skillful. The challenge is, can we understand the message? Okay, is this anger telling us something about the situation that needs a response? can we understand the message and take appropriate action but without being overwhelmed by the anger and then acting it out in ways that might be quite unskillful. So do you see the difference? It's like the arising of the emotion may be telling us something, we wanna hear the message But then we don't wanna be acting out with that energy of anger. Then we wanna be acting out with balance, with effectiveness, with what's gonna be skillful and appropriate at this time. So one of the most famous lines in the Buddhist teaching, and it's easy to hear this almost as a cliche, but there's a profound meaning in it. You know, for all of us as we live, where the Buddha said, hatred never ceases by hatred. It only ceases by love or loving kindness. It's A very simple statement. But we can see it in the world, you know, when this hatred, when we're either on the receiving end or the giving end or we're just observing it, you know, in, in the world, Does hatred ever bring about peace? I don't think so. You know, and see, hatred just breeds hatred. So then hatred comes back, and then it escalates and escalates, and so much of the, the huge conflicts and suffering in the world, these mutual hatreds that sometimes have been going on for generations, hatred never ceases by hatred, even though it's so easy to fall into that pattern. So can we pay attention? And hopefully none of you kind of are consumed by hatred, but even little, you know, little aspects of it, really pay attention and see that there's another possibility. A very essential part of our practice is the gradual expanding willingness to see every part of ourselves. I think I mentioned in a group this line from the book Zorba the Greek by Nicholas uh which was popular back, back in the day. Uh, but one of the lines, one of the characters said, self-knowledge is always bad news. <laughs> which I think you're discovering. <laughs> because You know, as we settle into mindfulness and awareness and this expanding ability to be with the whole show of our life and our minds. Unless you happen to be a saint, (laughs) we're going to see the shadow side. You know, there's a lot in us, a lot that's wholesome and some that's unwholesome. And our practice, the practice of mindfulness, gives us a greater and greater ability to actually open to all sides of ourselves. Because if we're not willing to see it, if we're not willing to acknowledge, oh yeah, there are these defilements, they're there. I can see them. Then there's no possibility actually for purification or for letting go because we're not even willing to acknowledge that they're present. So even though it's a challenging part of the practice, it's extremely uh, important and, and, and transforming when we're willing just to see all of these, you could call them the negativities in the mind. And a, a big shift takes place when instead of judging them or ourselves, we actually delight in seeing them because we'd rather see them than not see them. So I had, a, I had an experience uh, with Sayadaw Upandita. And again, you know, as I've mentioned, he was a pretty fierce, demanding teacher and a very powerful presence. Uh, and somehow in sitting with him, especially in the, the early years of, of that, I would just feel like my mind regressed to a three-year-old. You know, when i go, I'd be really nervous going into the interview and, you know, it's going to approve of me, all, all of that stuff. And what he was doing, the, f- the first period of time when I was sitting with him, every interview well, – maybe not everyone, but many – I'd give my report and he would just point out the various defilements in my mind, you know, which he, which he could tell just from my report. And at first, I mean, it made me feel terrible, you know, I felt – I was judging myself And then I was projecting that he was judging me, which just made it worse, you know. And so that made me even more not liking to go in. But he kept doing this and he kept doing this. And again, I was feeling very, wasn't easy. But at a certain point, this was after months, I went in, I gave my report and, I don't know, he listed... He pointed out 10 different defilements that were in my mind. You know, here's greed, here's conceit, here's pride, here's this, here's that. And I just started to laugh. (laughs) At that point, as he was going through the whole litany of my defilements, (laughs) I, I just started to laugh. And it was amazing. As soon as I stopped taking it so seriously, he stopped doing it. That was the last time that I went in for an interview, that he did that. And just in retrospect now, first I can see how skillful it was, retrospectively. <laughs> it didn't feel that way at the time. But he just kept pushing my buttons, as long as there was a reaction. And when there was no longer a reaction, didn't have to do it. So in this opening to the full range of what's in there, we actually want to be seeing you know, the shadow side as well as the bright side, uh, because that's how we come to a fuller understanding of ourselves, and to learn how to see it without self-judgment, without blame, without, this actually can be a delight. Oh, good, I see you. You know, one of the lines in the text, uh, which which happens quite often, uh, The Buddha will say, Mara, Mara is the embodiment of ignorance and delusion. So Mara will be up to some tricks and the Buddha will say, Mara, I see you. And then Mara disappears. So that's what it's like when we see the various defilements in our minds and we can say, ah, Mara, I see you. Jealousy, I see you. Pride, I see you. Greed, I see you. Just that. That being mindful of the whole range of our experience is the pathway to freedom, to liberation. And so we can take delight in the seeing. As we become less judgmental of ourselves, one of the very happy consequences of that is we become less judgmental of others. And we can really see this, that we're projecting the judgments on others so much because we're judging ourselves so much. And when we learn not to do that, and just to be with things as they're presenting themselves, there's a tremendous uh, lightness. And it was expressed really beautifully by uh, the English poet W.H. Auden, One of the lines from one of his poems was, love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. (laughs) And I just love that because it it just acknowledges we're all in the same boat. You know, we all have this mix of qualities and if we can be with that and understand it without the judgment, without the blame, without the reactivity, then we can love ourselves and love others with all our crooked hearts you know and there's just a lightness of being that comes from that so besides seeing what is wholesome in the mind and wholesome is really just another word for happiness producing i mean that's what wholesome. it's the buddha pointed out these are the wholesome qualities of mind these are the qualities of mind that actually bring us happiness and peace in addition to what we learn from being mindful on this level we're just seeing okay what are the what are the qualities that bring us happiness which bring us suffering in the practice of mindfulness we can take it even deeper and really see what is it that leads to freedom and whatever word, you, you might use the word freedom, or you might use the word peace, or truth, or whatever word for you symbolizes the highest understanding, the highest value. So the application of mindfulness that really sets us on the path to freedom not simply to the happiness of wholesome mind states but that actually leads to liberation is the mindfulness of our experience that allows us to see the momentary nature the changing impermanent nature of everything that's arising and again this is something we know conceptually we know intellectually you could go up to if you happen to find anybody on the streets of Barry and you ask them, do things change? It's like everybody would say, yeah, of course things change. So we all, (coughs) all, this is not an esoteric truth. We all know it conceptually, but we're not living what we know because it's all up here. It's mindfulness that actually drops us in directly into the experience of the unfolding process moment to moment and we are experiencing for ourselves very intimately and very directly that all of life is a flow of experience there's nothing static there's nothing that stays the same it's all a process of change So I want to do a little experiment now because there's there's an aspect of the teachings which uh, allow us to drop into the direct experience of change. But people often miss it because they don't necessarily understand what's involved. So a little experiment. If you just hold your hands together like that. You can, you know, you have the experience. Okay, so I want you to imagine being somebody who's never meditated before. Okay, so you're that person now who's never meditated. And if I asked you, what do you feel? What do you think that person would say? We had to rehearse that a lot. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you the answer that I'm looking for. <laughs> to the untutored person, untutored in meditation, what do you feel? I feel my hands. I feel my hands touching. We do not feel our hands there's no sensation called hand hand is a concept hand is a mental construct the name you know for what we see so we create the name and so what do you feel i feel my hand we don't feel hand what we feel is warmth or coolness or pressure or tingling or vibration those are the actual sensations that we're feeling So why make a big deal of this? Because as long as we're living as we do to a very large and unexamined extent, to the extent that we're living and perceiving in the world of our concepts about things, the concepts don't change. Hand today, hand tomorrow, hand yesterday, So when we're perceiving things on the level of concept, we are not in the direct experience of the flow of changes. And so we live in the illusion of things being relatively unchanging or relatively stable. Yeah, it's a hint. This is the same of everything. You know, this is the body. And as long as we think of the body, you know, we feel the body, body is a concept. There's no sensation called body. Right? The body is a concept. But what is it that we actually feel? So the sensations that we feel are things that I mentioned. And what's very apparent as soon as we drop to that level, and it's, it's really simple, we just drop to the level of what's actually being felt rather than, the conceptual image, as soon as we drop to the level of sensation, we are right there seeing the changes. These these sensations of pressure, tightness, tingling, tension, whether it's this or just the sensations in the body or as we're moving through the day, when you're being mindful on that level, the flow of changes becomes so apparent. This is a level we need to drop down Our meditation has to go from that level of concept to the level of direct experience because that's where impermanence reveals itself. So, halfway through. (laughs) For for you, this hour may seem like five hours. For me, it feels like five minutes. So I just want to give you a few examples, simple, simple ways of dropping down into this flow of impermanence, because this is the doorway to liberation. In very simple things, you know, you hear a sound. The untutored person, what do you hear? I hear the bell we don't hear a bell there's a, there's a certain you know vibration and even the the vibration of the sound the sound itself is not one thing right it, there's no there's no uh, there's nothing permanent in that process. It's all moment to moment. It's a flow. You take a step. So the conceptual level is, oh, I feel my foot. I feel my leg. We don't feel foot. We don't feel leg. No sensation called foot. We feel heaviness. We feel pressure. We feel tightness. So first it's just to get to the level of sensation. And then when we're on that level, to see that even in one step, it's not its not one thing. In one step, many, many sensations. In one breath, you know, an in-breath, an out-breath arising, it's not one thing. How many different sensations are happening in the course of one breath? So that's the... Direction. That's how we want to use the mindfulness to really investigate on that level the impermanence of our experience. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. <laughs> so, why? Why do this? The Buddha gave. Uh, A very simple statement outlaw outlining the trajectory of awakening and so it's kind of useful for us it just lays out a few very simple elements of the process of liberation and it's all tied it all has its beginning in the experience of impermanence which is why I wanted to emphasize it he said in perceiving impermanence the mind does not cling when it does not cling it is not agitated when it's not agitated it personally attains nibbana the highest peace few very simple steps seeing impermanence the mind does not cling not clinging the mind is not agitated not agitated We're right there in the vicinity of awakening. So again, as with many other things, I had read this so many times and just took it as a description of the process. And it was only in recent years that I took those words as an instruction to actually look to verify whether what he said was actually true in my experience. And so I invite you, it's really, when you're at whatever time in the day, in any activity, whether it's sitting or walking or moving around, when you really feel like you are in the flow of perceiving impermanence, you're just, you with the flow of changes. And it could be something very simple, like just the flow of changes in a movement. Or if you're in choiceless awareness and, you know, breath, hearing, thinking, you're just noting moment after moment what's arising, but you're really seeing the changing nature. At those times when you are perceiving the flow of changes, check out whether there's any clinging in the mind at that time. So you really see for yourself, you're not just accepting this as a description, you're seeing is what the Buddha said true for me? When we're seeing impermanence, there's no clinging. I think you'll find that that's true, but you need to see it for yourself because in the moment of clinging, it's like we stop, we're damning, we're damning the flow. You know, st- but when we're in the flow of impermanence, we can really experience the mind of not clinging. But if you look to check, you will have a very direct taste of what the non-clinging mind is like. And this is not, you don't have to wait 30 years to experience this, it's right here. When you're perceiving impermanence, just check out, is the mind clinging? Is there clinging in the mind or not? If you find that there's not, you're just in the flow of experience and you're not grabbing on, you're not holding on, then check out the next statement. When there's not clinging, there's no agitation. Just check out. it. Okay, there's no clinging. Is the mind agitated now or not? And I think you'll see that there isn't. So again, we get a very profound taste of what it means to have a mind free of agitation. You know, because we can hear the words, but we have to translate it. We have to connect it to our own experience. Oh, this is non-agitation. And in that state, we actually do get it, even if it's an intuitive sense, but in, in those times of really experiencing the non-agitation, we get an intuitive sense of the, the potential or the taste of enlightenment, of freedom. We're in the, we're in the ballpark of liberation. Again we have to see this for ourselves and it's not hard to do, it's just doing it. So I'll just, I'll close with <laughs> there's, <laughs> uh, So there's a very famous. there was a very famous Burmese uh, Sai Dao teacher, a meditation man, med- who was very renowned. He was both this fantastic scholar, but also uh, a meditative uh, adept. He was considered a great enlightened being. His name was Lady Sai Dau. That's L-E-D-I, not (laughs) L-A-D-Y. So Lady Sayadaw. So this is what he wrote. It's really about what we've been talking about. He said, not seeing things arising and passing away is ignorance. Not seeing the flow of impermanence is ignorance. And if we're not seeing it, we're just living in ignorance and then doing the very many things that create suffering in our lives. Not seeing arising and passing away is ignorance, while seeing all phenomena as impermanent, is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. So this is not a trivial thing, even though on some level it's very simple. We can drop into every aspect of our experience and see its changing nature. But we have to practice doing it because we're not in that habit. Not seeing arising and passing away is ignorance, while seeing all phenomena as impermanent, is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. So that's what you're doing here. Or should be doing here. (laughs) Uh, So, I just want to remind you of something I think you're all very well aware of. Uh, This is really a precious time. You know, the creation of a retreat container like this with this kind of support and environment for the practice is so rare. It's rare in the world and rare in our lives. So, you have All of of us have the great good fortune and karma, whatever, conditions came together for us to be here in practice. Do it. Thank you.